Hello and welcome to this new edition of the ILO's Future of Work podcast. I'm Sophie Fisher. Key workers play a vital role in our lives and in the functioning of the economies that we live in. This was one of the most important lessons of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yet during that crisis, it also emerged that many key workers face inadequate working conditions, including low pay, long hours and poor occupational safety and health. This has now been confirmed by a new ILO report on key workers, the World Employment and Social Outlook 2023 on the value of essential work. The report describes the need for better conditions for key workers as one of the most important policy lessons of the COVID-19 crisis. With me now to discuss why this is the case and what those lessons might be are Janine Berg, who is Senior Economist at the ILO, and Ivan Williams-Jimenez, who is Policy Development Manager at the Institution for Occupational Safety and Health in the United Kingdom. Welcome to you both and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Hi, Sophie. Let me start by asking you to define who we are talking about here, because we get used to the idea that essential workers are health workers, but the WISO report defines it much more broadly. Janine, why don't you start with that? Yes, so um, the definition of of key workers that we used in this report is actually derived from the lists that governments issued at the beginning of the pandemic of those workers who needed to provide essential services. And that actually is a much larger list. I mean, we have the idea that people are clapping for healthcare workers, but we also relied on the the storekeepers at the the grocery stores that we went to, uh, security workers, manual workers, cleaning and sanitation workers, transport workers, because of course some people needed to get to work, postal workers and other delivery workers, for example, all really important. And of course, the most important is is the food system workers. So really from, from, from farm to table, the entire value chain of agriculture is part of, of, of key work. So that's a pretty large chunk of the working population. It is a large chunk of the working population. In in poorer countries, it's actually um, the majority, or really in two thirds, in some of the poorer countries, because agriculture is such an important part of their of their economy. Um, but in richer countries, it's about one third of the workforce. Right. Okay. And let me just ask you a slightly provocative question here, which is, why does it matter if these key workers have substandard conditions? I mean, clearly, they're taking the jobs. Um, why does it matter? Well, it matters because our economies and our societies can't function without these workers. I mean, that's that's one issue. But more importantly, I mean, we're, we're this is the ILO. We support decent work. Uh, people need to have a decent living and decent working conditions in order to to live uh, the way they should be living, um, and 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 to provide the services that that we need. And so we see that when we don't have good working conditions, you have labor shortages, you have labor turnover. It means you might need health care. You go to the hospital, but there aren't enough nurses. These are problems that that um, you know that really impact all of us. So, it, it, do you think it's both a social and an economic issue here? Absolutely. And why do you think it is that conditions in these particular areas of the economy have deteriorated so much, or have not been brought up to to the level of other areas? I mean, I think there is a just a general undervaluation of the work. Um, part of it has been. Part of it, I mean, it's very complex, and it depends on the countries. Um, certainly, in poor countries, it has to do with you know issues of of, of underdevelopment and poverty. Uh, but even in the richer countries, we see that there's been you know a lot of use of 
of non-standard contractual arrangements, for example, that have deteriorated conditions. Uh, some of these occupations are feminized, and traditionally feminized occupations, particularly in, in some of the care services, personal care services, are, are undervalued and underpaid. Um, and and a lot of these also these a lot of these occupations aren't organized, so it's also very difficult for for some of the workers to to really have the bargaining power that they need to ensure that they are, are adequately paid. I mean, I think what, what what's coming out clearly from the report is that you know we can't just leave it to the market alone to decide to set wages. These are really important um, functions that these workers are 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 doing, and so we need to make sure that they're valued. Um, a little bit more overtly in our policies. Ivan, occupational safety and health is your your special area. Why do you think it is that OSH is substandard for a lot of these workers? OSH particularly, because of course it's it's so important, particularly in in a COVID context. As Janine was highlighting, I mean, it's worth noting that uh, we saw a general sense of weakness in compliance uh, mechanisms, uh, such as uh, OSH inspection services, uh, but also support of occupational health services. And I mean, this was evidence both in um, industrialized and non-industrialized um, uh, countries. Um, it goes without saying that many of these functions were overburdened. And I think that to this respect, many countries experience uh, firsthand uh, the effects of long-term uh, decreases in resources allocated to health and safety or um, labor labor inspectors and, and poor enforcement. So uh, we know um, the pandemic was a really um, challenging period, but I mean, many of these issues were already um, structure, uh, structural. Right, because of course, a lot, a lot of people say, well, more better occupational safety and health can be expensive. Is that an issue, do you think? Well, I mean, it, it is true that um, um, this period saw um, an unprecedented... Um, um, I mean, it, it saw how health and safety was really being elevated, but at the same time, uh, we also saw some um, structural failures that uh, really need to be um, analysed as well. Now, a second ago, you, you, you raised the issue that w- one of the issues related to these conditions was the fact that a lot of these workers are either in the informal sector or in the non-standard employment sector. In other words, they're not they're not working five days a week, Monday to Friday, nine to five or forty hour week. It's it's more flexible or there's some other kind of contractual arrangement. Do you think that's at the heart of the matter or is it more that what it often comes with is that these people are not organised into trade unions or some other way of expressing their, their collective voice. Um, okay, so the their working arrangements don't necessarily have to translate into poor conditions. I mean, if you have laws that are, or regulation that mandates equal treatment, let's say, between part-time and full-time workers or between temporary and workers on indefinite contracts, and then, then that should be fine. But what we see is actually in some of the regulation, you have these distinctions, which means then that their, their working conditions are going to be worse. Um, so... If workers are are unionized and they can be part of a collective bargaining process with employers' organizations, um, that allows to actually get at the heart of some of these issues uh, and to address them. And so that's certainly a means for for rectifying some of these issues. Um, so that that's one that's that's one that's one area. We see also in the poorer countries where you, you mentioned informality, many of these workers are are informally either informally employed, or as casual workers, or uh, they're self-employed. 
uh, as, as own account workers, let's say even you know working in agriculture, for example. And here it's it's a little bit uh, it's more of a development issue, and it's more about investing in, in in these in these services and supporting these workers and providing social protection so that we can improve uh, their income, their social protection, and, and and their and their living standards in general. And quite a lot of these key workers are in areas which don't require traditionally what I think are regarded as traditionally high levels of skill. In other words, the kind of skills you acquire through taking exams. Um, do you think that's an issue as well? I mean, I would say a lot of the work that is being done is actually skilled work. It might not be what people think of as a university degree, but it's certainly one needs skill to treat, uh, uh, you know, to have a personal care worker uses a lot of skill in their profession. Uh, A lot of agricultural workers use a lot of skill in their profession. So I think the concept of skill in itself is problematic. Um, I think it's really more a reflection of our society's undervaluing certain workers. Uh, and so that we need to have, and this is why, you know, we really wanted to do this report. It's really about recognizing, and until you recognize what people do, you don't value them. And so let's, you know, let's move away from just, you know, applauding them at 8 p.m. during the, the pandemic and actually turn this applause and this newfound recognition into better working conditions. Right. Okay. Now, your report says that uh, we need to invest more in physical and social infrastructure. That's part of the solution to the problem. What exactly do you mean by that? Can you be more specific? Okay, so one aspect is, of course, the working conditions, and we've already discussed that. But it's also about the investments that that governments make. So if a hospital doesn't have enough hospital beds, if you can't finance enough uh, physicians or nurses or other personnel in a hospital, then it's going to uh, have repercussions on the working conditions. If you're a nurse and you go to work and there aren't enough nurses on the on the floor, then that means that you're going to have a greater work intensity and you're going to have burnout and you're going to leave. So you, we have to recognize that it's not just an individual issue or an, or just a working condition, a labor market issue, but also a, a, a broader issue about um, government priorities. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we, you know, we really try to make that link with, with the macroeconomic dimension. And as you said earlier, the, the, there's a matter of perception here as well, isn't there? You know, what is, what is the most valuable job? It's not necessarily one that is the highest paid or has the highest level of academic skills. These are, are valuable jobs, but not valued in the, that rather sort of um, simplistic way. Yeah, absolutely. And it's about recognizing that, you know, we work in systems and organizations and there's lots of moving parts and all those moving parts are important. It's not just the people at the top of the hierarchy, you know, without those without those other people doing all of these really critical functions, everything else doesn't work. Uh, And just because they might not have a university degree doesn't mean that they should be in working poverty. Right. Um, Sorry, yeah, come in. If I may just um, jump in, uh, one critical aspect, I mean, for this world is also good occupational safety, safety and health. And I think um, this needs to include both uh, um, physical, but also mental health. And something that we witnessed throughout the, this crisis uh, was um, serious mental health and well-being issues affecting key, key workers in the form of um, increased workloads or um, longer working hours, uh, reduced resting periods, and even post-pandemic period, uh, like the one that we are currently in, um, shortages, uh, staffing. Um, And this is really leading to employees reporting uh, high levels of burnout and mental exhaustion. So I think it's important to to, um, highlight that um, health uh, 
it's not health and safety is not just safety, but also uh, the health aspect is important as, as well. And I suppose that, that in thinking about that, we also need to recognise that for many of these key workers, the, the crisis is still going on. I mean, although I think it's it's three years this month since the COVID pandemic was first declared, we now have other socioeconomic issues that have built on it. We've got inflation, we've got the cost of living crisis, um, we've got uh, labour shortages in, in some areas. So presumably um, that all has a, an effect on the mental health issues you were, you were talking about. Absolutely. And as, as Janine was referring, um, here we're talking uh, to a more um, longer term investment in, in, in key workers Um um, health, safety, and and well-being, and more like a proactive approach and, and less reactive or, or short, based on on short teams. So I th- yeah, I think uh, as you were mentioning, the situation is currently aggravated by staff shortages in essential occupations, and this really needs to be addressed in the current context of um, a socio-economic recession. And we're seeing this in I mean so many different uh, countries uh, throughout the world. Okay, and that neatly brings me on to the question of lessons learned and what we should take away from this country, this crisis, to help us prepare for for future crises. Ivan, would you like to to start on that one? What what do you think needs to be done to put us in a better situation for key workers? Uh, Thanks, Sophie. Uh, From from a health and safety standpoint, uh, proactive occupational safety and health uh, preventive measures and, I mean, in general, strengthening um, OSH uh, management systems and, and policies. And as I was mentioning before, this needs to include uh, occupational health and mental health. And this needs to happen, of course, at both um, national and, and business levels. We, we all know uh, this is, of course, um, easy to say, but difficult to implement in, in, in practice. But well, key stakeholders need to make sure that um, there is a renewed commitment to protecting workers from, from future crises, and in particular, to, to key workers. And Janine, what, what would you say are, are the key lessons that, that we should learn and take away to get ourselves in a better situation for future crises, which will, will come? They will absolutely come. Um, and, and I think the, the prevention metaphor is actually a good one. So we have you know, the prevention metaphor that works for occupational safety and health, but it's really about a prevention in general. Um, so we, we, we live in a world of an age of crisis, right? We're going to have recurring crises. These workers will always be key. Um, they're not this, you know, this list doesn't really change with crises. These are the people that keep, keep our work functioning. So we need to invest in them. We need to invest in their sectors so that they can do their jobs uh, the way properly and they can live properly. Um, and that way, when the next crisis hits, we're, in, we're in a more, uh, more prepared for it. Right. So it's the glue that keeps our society together that, that we have to strengthen for next time. Thank you very much to both of you. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Um, I was with Janine Berg, who is Senior Economist at the ILO, and Ivan Williams-Jimenez from the Institution of Occupational Safety and Health in the United Kingdom. And if you want to know more about the ILO's new report on key workers and the value of essential work, you will find it on the ILO's website. So for now, let me wish you goodbye and I hope you will be able to join us again soon for another edition of the Future of Work podcast. Goodbye.